If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts, which is where we have been in the last few weeks, and where we will be for a number of weeks ahead. Basically, the plan is um, to go through the book of Acts all the way till the end of May. Um, at that point in time, college students, you know, usually you all are going home to wherever your homes are. And uh, then we're going to pick up some other sort of series. And then in the fall, when the students are back, then we'll jump back into the book of Acts. Uh, so that way the Biola folks don't miss any of Acts. Um, so we've been walking through the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And we get to read, we have the privilege of reading a history of how the early church was birthed. So if you can think about the gospel, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There you have the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He dies on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever repent and believe, and so uh, wins forgiveness for all those people. And then Acts is about how all of his disciples then go out and start spreading the gospel, the good news, to the ends of the earth. And that, in fact, is their mission, as it says there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which reads, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's all about what the book, is, uh, book of Acts is about. It's about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ going to the ends of the earth. And it starts all in Jerusalem, as we've seen in uh, previous weeks. Luke, um, Luke, the gospel of Luke, and then the, the book of Acts, it was written by a doctor. So you can imagine a man with that type of training and that type of education. He sets about to write an orderly account and then uh, to give to this man named Theophilus and all Christians a written record of what exactly happened, how exactly um, the world was turned upside down, as it says later on in the book of Acts, through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. So last week, Johnny preached uh, very helpfully, showed us how the name of God was being proclaimed. Believers were doing things in the name of God, um, and then there was opposition to the name of God. So you had the Jewish rulers, they were trying to stamp out the name of while the apostles were preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And then so you see the satanic opposition. Right? People are arrested. They're told to basically shut up. Don't stop talking about Jesus Christ. And that passage that we looked at last week. Look at chapter 4 verses 29 to 31. This is how that passage ends. And it's important to review this because um, we see more about how God is moving he, God hears this prayer that I'm about to read, and he answers it, okay? Verse 29, chapter 4. So the believers are let out of jail. They all go back together, and this is they lift up their voices, and this is what they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And then God answers... In 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Alright, that's key. The Spirit comes and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The question is though, how exactly would he continue to answer? Or even in fact, would he continue to answer? And from this morning's passage, we see that Jesus will build his church, as Pastor Rick read earlier. 
and not even satanic deception, not even persecution, and then not even distraction would be able to overcome Jesus and his determination to build his church. And it's amazing. Um, In light of these things, so deception in the church, persecution against the church, and then distraction from the church's mission, in all those things, the church grows numerically and in unity in the face of opposition. We see that really clearly here today and then especially um, in next week's passage. Okay, so let's look at the, how the church grows, because this is how the passage starts off. Chapter 4, so here you can, if you're taking notes, you can title this part, Church Growth. Chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. <clears throat> okay, now keep in mind, right, that the believers have been persecuted, and this is what it says. Now the full number of those who, who believed were of one heart, and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given their test, giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. You see that emphasis there? That dual emphasis? You got the unity of the church there in verse 32. The full number, so in other words, all of those who had believed were of one heart and soul. That's unity right there. And had everything in common. The other emphasis there is in 33. Here you got the boldness to proclaim the gospel. So that's great power. They're giving their testimony to the resurrected Jesus. So how does the church grow? That's unity and then boldness in preaching the message. Unity and boldness in preaching the message. <clears throat> you know, in, um, in, uh, if, you, if you all have ever been in a mission, on a mission to, let's say, some sort of closed country, or not even a closed country, but let's say you and your friends are evangelizing someone in your neighborhood or in your workplace, um, if one is fearing what might happen if you're sharing the gospel, that fear is actually really contagious. I remember one time going to um, a closed country, overseas, <clears throat> and uh, what happened is um, the group that I went over with, we were giving money to this government official uh, legally, and that man was supposed to distribute it uh, to uh, some nonprofit organizations during this region of, a, of a, where a flood took place. And what happened is that his higher authorities found out that he was pocketing some of that money, and the team found out. So so this is us. And when we found out that the higher authorities were investigating him, we figured that it would be only a matter of time before they figured out that we were the ones giving the money, and obviously we're coming as Christians. Um, And there was this little spark of fear. What's going to happen if the government officials find out that that we're there, not only to help the community, but... You know, we're teaching English, obviously we're Christian. And that fear just sort of lit a fire. And soon enough, we were all saying, oh, we need to take off earlier because we're in some serious trouble. And there wasn't even any indication that we would actually get into trouble. And so you saw that power of fear sort of spreading really quickly. But here, by God's grace, that fear, in the face of persecution, in the face of threats and jailings, The Bible says that God's grace 
was upon them. Look there in 33. So, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. And that's what accompanied their boldness to speak the gospel there. So these folks here, God, they, uh, they knew that God was protecting them, shielding them to some degree. They knew that God was drawing them together to bless them with that unity. And then we knew that God was empowering them to fulfill his very own mission that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So they enjoy great unity. <clears throat> and then it's evidence, it evidenced itself, look there in 34, in this particular way of uh, showing generosity. 34 and 35. Um, so they, they sell the lands, they're bringing it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Um, so this here is a Holy Spirit wrought love. Where did this love come from? It's, it's from the Spirit himself that's bringing this unity, right? There was not a needy person among them. Interesting, in Deuteronomy, God says this. He says, basically to Israel, he says, There shall be no poor among you, because the Lord will bless you. So here this Acts community, this birth of the church, is very much what Deuteronomy was pointing to. As Paul says in Galatians, um, the church is the Israel of God. The Israel of God, even though we're made up, as you can see, of people uh, from many different nations here. And then J Joseph, or Barnabas, was an excellent example of this generosity here. See, this, this is a man who's living on mission to God. He's living out his life that's changed by the gospel. Look at 30, 35 to 7. Sorry, 35 to 37. Again, people are giving, and then 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, the point of this is not that we should be striving for some sort of Christian communism. So in the New Testament, let's be clear, uh, the New Testament doesn't call us to not own houses. The New Testament doesn't say if we own a house, we should therefore transfer the ownership to the church itself. The, the, the New Testament doesn't say that at all. In fact, later on in the New Testament, we know that individuals continued to own houses, and that seemed to be a fine thing and a good thing. So Paul can write a letter and say something like, to the, to the church that meets in your house. There's ownership there. So there's no Christian communism here. All this was voluntary, and this type of giving was all according to their own free will. So we as distant onlookers, so we look on you know, 2,000 years later, what we are to emulate and strive for is that generosity that drove them to give and to lay down such great amount of such great amount of wealth and to share it with their brothers and sisters so that there might be none needy among us. So here we're talking about church members here. So for us today, how do you view your money and possessions and giving? Have you ever considered that whatever great resources you may have, or whatever small resources you might have, have you ever considered that uh, you have been given those things to reflect God's generosity as he gave his very own son? You see how the Christian community there, they're supposed to proclaim the gospel, but then also live a life that's changed by the gospel, and then so display God's glory to the world? What does it look like for someone to be stingy? Or miserly, 
Right? How does that affect? How does that reflect the glories of God's generosity in giving His very own self to death, or Christ giving His very own blood so that we might might be bought? Christ, who came not to serve, but to sorry, not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. So how does that? How are you reflecting the generosity of God if you are a believer uh, in your giving? And in laying down your life for your brothers and sisters. Not just financially here. We're talking about everything. Right? Because everything we have, we've been given from God. If we genuinely believe that, then we can give out of that same generosity that God has given us. Unfortunately, there was also another onlooker. But not 2,000 years after. But during that time. And they didn't, he didn't want to emulate the believers. Or copy what they were doing. Or reflect God's generosity. He actually wanted to tear them apart. And he sort of tried to do that. He began attempting to do that um, by introducing deception into the church. And here we address now the threats to the church. Threats to church unity. So first we saw church growth. Now we look at the threats towards church unity. Satan is this person who was threatening the church. And we see here, this is Satan's counteroffensive in the next in the set of passages that we're going to look at for the rest of the sermon. This is Satan's counter-offensive to bring down the church. Right? He did everything possible to derail Christ from going to the cross, right? And so now it's not surprising that we see him trying to derail the church from their mission of reflecting and displaying the glory of God. Okay, first we see that there's deception in the church. This takes place in chapters 5, verses 1 to 11. This is chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So Barnabas is the positive example. He lays down his property on his, by his own free will and says, look, if there's any needy among you, let us share these things so that we might be provided and so reflect the generosity of God. We also have the negative example, and this is through Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, uh, just due to time, we're not going to read this whole entire account, so I'll just go ahead and summarize it. See, what happened is that they sold their property. um, They kept back some of it. And then when they brought it to the apostles' feet, they said, here is the total amount that we sold it for. This is the entire purchase price that we got. So little did um, the church know that they were pocketing some of that money. So this is here's deception. We can think about all the different reasons why they might have done that. We, it doesn't seem, um, I mean, it seems relatively clear. They sort of wanted to receive some of the credit. You know, you, you can imagine, right, if I sell my house for 200000 and I pocket 50000 and I say, look, here, I'm giving you guys 200000 right? The, t- the tendency there is to receive praise. Wow, look at the generosity of Jeremy. Even though I'm giving um, a large amount of money, it's not the whole amount. So they're lying, it seems, because they want to receive praise. So they sell their property. That's, that's no problem. That's no problem at all. Uh, but what happens is that they lie. And they are condemned ultimately for doing just this very thing. Peter says that their lying heart and deception was satanic. 
satanic. Look at Peter's rebuke there, starting in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He says that there that what's what they're giving, right? They gave that money, was influenced. It was sort of like the last domino that fell, but what sort of pushed it over was the satanic influence that was working in their very own hearts. And he says there, look at verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, you owned that. You could have done anything you wanted with it. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal to do anything you want with it? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there you see, you see really the offense there. The offense is not primarily against the church, although it is against the church. But here, his offense is against God himself. And look what happens in verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then what happens a little while later, Sapphira, she's not, she's, she's not a witness to this thing. She comes in a little bit later, and she tells the exact same lie. Peter says, so is this the amount that she sold it for? And she says, yes, it was. And then she also is struck dead. Um, serious consequence for lying to the Holy Spirit, which here is lying to God. You might ask, uh, you know, this is, what's the big deal? Let's just assume, you know, in modern day terms, um, she's selling the house, they're selling the house for 200000 They're keeping fifty, and they're so they're giving one hundred and fifty. What's the big deal? The church is getting one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Everyone's needs are being met, right? It's not a big deal. Well, I think if you look at it that way, so like a mere cash transaction point of view, like this is what this giving is—it's a cash transaction. Yeah, maybe you could say it's not that big of a deal. The church's needs are still met. They apparently are seen to be generous. But I don't think that that's the way Acts, the book of Acts wants us to understand this. If you look at it from God's perspective, it is a big deal. So the church, after all, is His people on His mission, supposed to display His character to the world. And part of how He achieves that is by giving us things so that we might give them away to others, right? So imagine... This, this web of relationships, right? Let's say that we're this early church and we're just giving. So we got this web of relationships. These people are giving over here. These people are giving over here and it all goes to God's glory, right? Because we are all living on mission. God has called us. He saved us. He's all commissioned us to preach the gospel and to live our lives changed by the gospel. And so now what we're doing is we're living our lives changed by the gospel. We're saying, look, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love out of the love that God has given us. And so people are giving and giving and giving and loving and loving and loving all for Christ's sake. You know what kind of testimony that has to the outsider who might be poor? The outsider who might be stingy? The rich who might be trying to hold on to all their cash? They're saying that's a really odd community. And they may even say, well, I think I want that over my own stinginess. Or I think I want that because I'm poor and no one's helping me out. But this group of believers are helping each other out for the sake of the gospel. Ananias and Sapphira, on the other hand, um, their giving is actually subversive to the gospel. 
their giving is actually subversive to Christianity and the gospel. Right? So imagine that web of relationships and all of a sudden you introduce these people who are giving to get. Right? The Christians are giving because they love God and they want God to receive all the glory and they're boasting in Christ's work. Ananias and Sapphira, they're giving to get even if it's the praise of man. This here is giving that doesn't appear to have God at its center. Christian love driving the thing. They ultimately, I guess, they want to boast in their own work or have others notice their own work and so it downplays the work of Christ. Whereas the Christians are giving and saying, look, we give out of the love that we've received. We work because Christ has so worked for us. We're generous because God has been so generous to us. That's why it's such a big deal. Right? So if you introduce selfish giving into the church, into this web of relationships, that's going to spread. Can you just imagine if we all were giving with an expectation to receive back? What the community might look like. Right? If you gave with strings attached to the church, whether it be you're wanting money back, or whether you're wanting praise for your man, or whether you're wanting to be noticed, can you imagine what this community would look like? It would be a community that gives in order to get out of selfishness, really. But thank God the Lord teaches us that it's not about how much we give, although that's a good question, you know, whether we give on net or gross, etc., etc. It's not about that. It's not about cash transaction, but it's, it's about the mission, right? We are God's people on His mission to display His glory by preaching His word and by living changed lives that He has changed. That's what it's about, the big umbrella and stewardship is just one slice of that. How we use our money is just one slice of how we carry out the mission of God, the mission of the church that we've been uh, commissioned to do. Stewardship falls underneath that big banner. So it's through this act of discipline that God hones and focuses the church, and he strengthens it in its unity. And God says that we are, about to be, we, we are supposed to be about that mission and do things for that unity. Because of Christ. This is why Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in Ephesians 4, verse 3. And you see the resolution there in chapter 4, verse 11. Look there. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So you see how God is honing the church. He's strengthening the church's mission and their resolve. And then you see fruit there in... in, uh, Verses 12 to 16, chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Here I'll just summarize it. Um, The church continues to grow. Some oppose and they choose not to join those opposers. On the other hand, look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So a lot of people are joining the church. Church is blossoming. Um, and miracles being done. You guys remember what the apostles prayed for? That God would stretch out his hand, that mighty works and signs and wonders would be done as the, as the gospel is being preached. This is exactly what happens here. In verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns in Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is absolutely unique. Absolutely, you know, lots of miracles are going on because this is a very unique time, right? Christ had just 
gone back up. He had ascended up into heaven at the right hand of the Father. And now so, in this unique time of how God saves his people, these miracles are accompanying these great active uh, works of God. So the church is growing. The church has been strengthened. Um, You see great fruit even right there. So that's the first threat. That's deception. That Satan introduces to the church. Deception. People are not wanting to live on mission. Instead, they're wanting to live for their own glory. Not the glory of Christ, but their own glory. You see that even something like giving. You see also the second threat. Second threat is the persecution against the church. So if you guys remember, the church is growing. We got the church is being strengthened in unity. And then the church is being strengthened to preach the gospel. So it's no surprise that we see Satan trying to go for those very things. Right? In the first one, deception in the church, he tries to break down church unity. And here, he tries to stop the preaching of the gospel. And this is in uh, verses 17 to 42. 17 to 42. Again, I'll just summarize it. Um, So miracles are going on. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So they're being arrested for the gospel. And then you look at 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So he tells them to speak, right? They were just arrested. Just get this, okay? You just think of boldness. They were just arrested. And then they're released. And then they get arrested, and, sorry, and then an angel opens the door, and they said, okay, you go right back out to where you were preaching, and you preach it again. That's boldness. Some might even say foolishness here, but it's the Lord's will that they would just continue to be preaching the gospel. I mean, you just look at the words that he uses there. Go and stand in the temple, the place where you were just arrested, and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see that priority there of the speaking of the gospel? Speak the words of this life. They could have gone on the mission in so many different ways, right? They could have strapped on swords on their backs and clubs in their fists and gone and accomplished the mission. But that's not what God chose to do. The mission isn't accomplished by coercion. The mission is accomplished by speaking life. You see the priority there. The importance of preaching the word and also hearing the word. And obviously, you see boldness here. The Lord is answering these prayers that the Spirit would give them boldness to continue to speak the word. Okay, look at the, look at the reaction. Um, look at 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple, and at daybreak began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Okay, so 70 uh, leaders, including the high priest, that would total 71. Um, they call the apostles. They say, they gather together and say, okay, go get the apostles who are in prison for preaching the gospel. Look at 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported. So these guys bust into the meeting, the, the, Pharise- the Sadducees meeting. Um, and this is what they say. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Okay, so they bust in. They hear these words. And listen to this. 
Now, verse 24, Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came, so someone else busts into the meeting. Someone else came and told them, Look, the men you put in prison, the men whom you said not to speak in the name of Christ ever again, they're standing in the temple and teaching in the name of Christ. They're teaching the people again. This is a crazy time. Can you just imagine being part of the, the Sadducees here, the leaders of Israel? Just, you know, just try and put yourself in that situation. Okay, you got the crucifixion. Some dude comes to their area and, sa and says he's the king of the Jews. And so the Jewish leaders, they say, well, let's just try and kill him. They kill him. <clears throat> Three days later, his body is gone. They make up some story about how it was stolen. Okay, so they're, they're stressed out. They say, okay, the best thing to do is we need a lie. And then next, these disciples are talking about how Jesus actually rose from the dead. All right, and then you got, the, you got Pentecost. So about 50 days after the resurrection, um, after Passover, you have Pentecost. So, so tongues of fire are coming down from heaven. Jews who don't know how to speak languages, uh, the, the, let's say the languages of the surrounding area. Now all of a sudden they're speaking different languages by the Holy Spirit's power. Peter and the disciples are saying that, that the Jews killed the Son of God. Peter heals the lame, a lame man, and, and this dude is running around the temple. Um, the leaders don't know what to do with it, so they arrest Peter. He gets released, and then he's arrested again. Angels opening the prison doors. They just can't shut these guys up. And it's interesting what the Jewish leaders are concerned with. Here you just see... How You see really what the main thing is in all of these narratives. Look there in 28. Finally, they bring these guys in. They say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right? There's so many things that they could have focused on. And what do they intend to do? They're concerned about their guilt. That, that's a good thing. They're supposed to be concerned about their guilt. But they're concerned about it in a very wrong way. You see how hard-hearted they are. They're determined to deny the very thing, so their guilt that had they acknowledged their guilt and confessed it and repented of it, that would have been the door to salvation. But here they are just so determined to maintain their innocence. All of these events that just happened, they all go to testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that He reigns over all, that He came to die on the cross for the sins of anyone who would repent and believe, that He rose from the grave three days later, and that gospel is to go to the ends of the earth and they're saying, you want to bring guilt upon us? <laughs> and look at the boldness here. Look at, look at uh, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. That is the cross made of wood. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses to these things and so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey us so you see right there the apostles no matter what all these crazy things are going on it's not about those crazy things it's about the gospel of jesus christ 
not about the miracles. So we don't we shouldn't lift up these miracles and say that's ultimate. What's ultimate here is the gospel that testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. And the gospel is for everyone who would repent and believe. Everyone who hears the invitation to repent and believe ought to, ought to consider. Do I follow this Lord? Or am I living my life following other things that might distract us? So if Jesus Christ will build his church, if he is going to do that, if he is the great king, the question we all need to be thinking for ourselves is when he returns, do we want to be fighting with the king or seem to be fighting against the king? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So if you're here and you're not a believer, let me encourage you to just look at this and just see God is determined to build his church and nothing will stop it. So have you repented and believed? The great news is that this gospel, if you're hearing it today, is for you. And it ought to really challenge us to repent and believe. To turn from our sins and follow this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you see the boldness here. God again is answering his prayers. He's determined that this church is going to fulfill their mission. And this really ticks off the the leaders there. Look in 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They're really angry here. Guilt on our shoulders? They're so angry they want to kill them. And then Gamaliel steps in here. This man named Gamaliel. He was a, a Jewish teacher, a very famous one. Uh, I'll go ahead and read 35 to 39. Follow along there. We'll see what he says. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. In other words, you kill the leader and the movement dies. And then he says, After him, Judas the Galilean rose up, in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. In other words, once again, you kill the leader, and the movement dies. And then we go on. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found... Opposing God. That's the point, isn't it? Gamaliel probably speaks more than he even realizes. They are fighting against God himself. So this is wisdom here. Um, And then you see the resolution in verse 40 to 42. I'll read that. So they took his advice. They chose not to kill them. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. There it is again. They're trying to stamp out the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You see that? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Joy because they were Suffering. You can imagine these guys being beaten. Some people think that they were whipped, which is basically like whipped basically 40 times. 
So their chests are open with flesh, their back is open with flesh, and they're rejoicing. You can imagine what might have gone through their minds as they were receiving you know, blow after blow. Jesus Christ himself, who was whipped, who was beaten, who was mocked. Maybe even as they were suffering, these words were going through their mind from Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I think that as they were being beaten, they had very much in the forefront of their minds, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, who was beaten, smitten, afflicted, he suffered for us. And so now we count, we count ourselves worthy to suffer the same fate as Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, whom we preach about. That's that Jesus Christ who brought the good news. And so they're, worth, they're so happy, they're joyful to suffer here. I don't think we should think of these guys as like lunatics, you know, begging to suffer uh, at, the, at whatever chance they get. I don't think so. If you guys have known uh, people who have suffered for their faith, they can suffer joyfully, but still with great sorrow. Um, when, I, when we were in the Middle East, uh, I was blessed with this opportunity to teach a bunch of house church leaders from a closed country. House church leaders came um, to where we were staying. And it was probably like a room of about 15 of us. Um, and we were getting their testimonies. And one by one, they just started talking about how they had been arrested, persecuted, jailed. And some even, what they would say is tortured. I didn't ask them the specific, but tortured for their faith. And you know what I was there to teach them about? Suffering. Suffering. These brothers here, they were determined to see Jesus Christ go, the name of Christ go out to their own people and see their own people come to know Jesus and confess Him as Lord and Savior. And they're determined to do that, and they joyfully suffer. They're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That was so encouraging to me. I was humbled. I mean, the, most amount, the greatest amount of suffering I had was uh, you know, being made fun of regularly for being a Christian by my Muslim friend, by my Buddhist friend. Um, and then there was this one time I was evangelizing, and a guy pulled a gun on, my, uh, gun on me. Uh, but that still is nothing compared to what they're experiencing here. Here are these folks, man, this, this rejoicing, this joy, counting themselves worthy to suffer dishonor. Right? That's the mark of these apostles here. They set this beautiful example for us to follow in. Not that we should pursue persecution, but that we should be bold in the face of it. That we should have such great confidence that God is protecting us, even in the midst of threats, persecutions, jailings, such a wonderful example. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there, there are some people who downplay suffering. They say, if you just have enough faith, you won't suffer. I think that's completely anti-biblical. Right? It makes light of Peter's sufferings. It makes light of these martyrs' sufferings. It makes light of the, the, the group of house church leaders that I served. It makes light of their sufferings. And more importantly, it's just unbiblical. So John 15, it says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Listen to this one, 2 Timothy 3.12. 
He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It seems really clear according to Paul and according to Jesus. Now, our persecution may not be the same, right? So, but, but to some degree, we might experience what it looks like to be reviled or to be excluded or to be spurned. And you all hopefully would know this, right? I used to work at 24-Hour Fitness, and uh, all the trainers would sort of gawk at these uh, women who are wearing barely anything. And so uh, when I wouldn't do that, you know, their natural response is, you know, what's wrong with Jeremy? And what, what would happen is they would go out to parties and I wouldn't get invited. They would be talking about girls and they wouldn't talk about it around me. But it actually, in their exclusion of me, it actually testifies to the fact that, wow, Jesus, God is, I mean, Jeremy is different. And that's because of his Christianity. Because they knew I wanted to go into ministry. They knew that I was talking to my clients about uh, Jesus Christ and church and the gospel. So if you have ever, ever experienced you know, this type of reviling, this exclusion, you're probably doing something right. According to Jesus' words, according to Paul's words. If you've never experienced anything like that, I think you can ask yourself if you are living on mission for God. Or are you a chameleon that sort of changes colors to fit whatever situation you might be in? You know, you sort of just want to be liked by everybody, so therefore no one's really excluding you. Pastor Kent Hughes encourages us to ask and answer some self-diagnostic questions in effort to help us live on mission. Am I living consistently in view of what I know about Jesus? Am I living consistently in view of what I know about Jesus? The second one, am I living a life that is in accord with what I am learning in the scriptures? Basically, am I living a biblical life? Another one, am I refusing to do what I know he wants? Whether it be to give up a sin or whether it be to pursue holiness? Another one, am I refusing to share my faith because of fear or rejection or any other reason? Am I refusing to share my faith because of fear or rejection or any other reason? So if you guys fear man, which I assume we all do, the answer here is to pray. How do you conquer a fear of man? You conquer it with a greater fear of God. You pray for boldness that God would equip us to speak the gospel. So I did that. And here I was sitting in this parking lot, wanted to walk around the block. Um, and so when I pulled up, I knew, man, I don't know these people. I've never even gone door to door, but I think it's a good idea. And I want to know what these people think about Jesus. So I prayed, you know, God, I don't know what to say to these people. I don't even know them. They might not like me. There's a really big pickle over there, and they might eat me. Uh, so I was fearing. But the answer there is really to pray that God would empower me to speak the gospel, to have the, to have the, to have the words to speak to others so I might love them more. How do you conquer the fear of man with an even greater fear of God? And God will empower us when we pray uh, for his spirit. Okay, so we looked at deception in the church, we looked at persecution in the church, and now with a very little amount of time we have uh, left, we look at distraction from the mission of the church. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Um, I'll summarize verse 1, though, uh, it presents the, the context. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is, Jews who were basically uh, of, of the Greek culture, the surrounding culture around them, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected by the daily distribution. So here you have, let's say, the Hellenistic widows over here. They aren't receiving the daily distribution of food. 
you have the Jewish widows over here um, who would be receiving. So neglected, receiving. Neglected, receiving. What happens? Look at what the apostles say. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The word there is basically means deacon in English. Deacon. Um, that is service. Deaconing. So they say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there's church conflict. And it's, it's potentially going to distract them, the, the disciples, the apostles, from their mission to preach the gospel. But it's not that this, that this uh, conflict and making sure people receive the daily distribution was unimportant. It was very important. Which is why the apostles said, look, we need to f- figure out, find people who can minister and to deacon, to carry out these administrative needs amongst the church. And so they do just that. <clears throat> uh, look at verse 5 and what they say, please the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, they chose Philip, and then others. And these men were full of the Spirit, it says. Verse 6, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So there, the deacons encourage the ministry of preaching the word. This is administrative tasks that go towards supporting the ministry of the gospel. Both are equally important in the church's life. And none should be neglected. But here the apostles say, we cannot give up preaching the gospel to wait on tables, basically. Uh, so you see the priorities of the, the apostles there, which would then give us um, sort of a pattern for the priorities of a pastor. Preaching of the word, prayer, that is, generally speaking, uh, spiritual oversight. The deacons, they're not pastors, although, of course, I'm sure they were uh, caring for others very much so especially here, the the two different groups of widows, but they're carrying out an administrative task to make sure that people are cared for in the church. And then you see the fruit there. Look at that in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see here that Jesus is going to build his church, and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. You see deception in the church, but yet the church grows. You see persecution against the church, but yet the apostles are still preaching the gospel in the very place where they were arrested. And then you see distraction in the church, but yet the believers continue to be added to their number. People are being cared for. The gospel is being preached. So in all of these stories of challenges in the church and then also outside, here it leads us to great confidence that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He has given us the mission, that is to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, He has empowered us for the mission by giving us his spirit, and he has promised that he will in fact complete it. So let us then act in faith and do what God has called us to do, to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth and live our lives changed by this gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that not only do you command us to do us to do things and call us to do things, yet you also give us the grace to do them. Lord, we pray that you would embolden us. We pray that as we read this book of Acts, even this passage today, that we might be confident, knowing that nothing will stop the church. 
And Lord, we pray also that we would be humbled because if these people here um, were potentially distracting the apostles, the disciples um, from the church's mission, Lord, we know that certainly our hearts can do that as well too. So Lord, we pray that we would do what Paul said, which is make every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray, Lord, that we would lay down our, um, our desires and preferences so that Jesus Christ's name would be made known. Make us bold, we pray, to do these things, whether it be to share our resources that you own and that you gave us, or whether it is to preach the gospel and certainly to evangelize those who are around us. Lord, we pray that you would fix our eyes on the end goal, that is to see Christ magnified and exalted in the church and in this community of Hacienda Heights and then also in the world. In your name we pray, amen.